Welcome to You News, the podcast using the power of Univision to bring the news that matters to you in English. Today is Friday, April 9th. I'm Andrea Linares. These are today's headlines. Riveting testimony in the trial of Derek Chauvin, a medical expert testifying that the former officer continued kneeling on George Floyd's neck nearly three minutes after other officers found that Floyd had no pulse. Customs and Border Protection announcing that 168,000 migrants were picked up along the border in the month of March, as HHS officials respond to allegations of assault at a Texas migrant facility. And the United States administering COVID-19 vaccines at five times the global average, but experts still worried about a disturbing rise in cases nationwide. This and much more today on U News, transmitting live from our newsroom in Miami. Day 10 of testimony in the trial of former Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin currently underway. That officer charged with the death of George Floyd and this morning, a forensic pathologist taking the stand. Dr. Lindsay Thomas testifying that the subdual restraint and compression of law enforcement of George Floyd was ultimately the immediate cause of his death. Let's listen. So as I mentioned, I think the primary mechanism was asphyxia or low oxygen. And it basically is Mr. Floyd was in a position uh, because of the subdual restraint and compression where he was unable to get enough oxygen in um, to maintain his body functions. Hennepin County Chief Medical Examiner Dr. Andrew Baker, who performed the autopsy of George Floyd, is also scheduled to testify today. And so far, 33 witnesses have been called for the prosecution. The focus now is on testimony from medical experts. On Thursday, two doctors agreeing that George Floyd died from a low level of oxygen and testifying that what he went through would have killed any healthy individual. Compelling testimony from the prosecution's medical expert testifying about what caused George Floyd's death. The cause of death is a low level of oxygen that caused the brain damage and caused the heart to stop. Dr. Martin Tobin, an expert on breathing and lung function, walking the jury through 3D diagrams illustrating the factors he believes impacted Floyd's breathing and led to his death, including his body pressed against the pavement, handcuffs, being in the prone position, Derek Chauvin's knee on his neck, back, torso, and arm. So this is your windpipe here. Dr. Tobin demonstrating for the jury, asking them to follow along on their own bodies. Most did, placing their hands on their necks and the parts of the anatomy that affect breathing. And then he analyzed a video frame by frame. What you're seeing is that the toe of his boot is no longer touching the ground. This means that all of his body weight is being directed down at Mr. Floyd's neck. Also taking the stand, Dr. William Bill Smock, emergency medicine physician with specialized training in forensic medicine. He too agreed with Dr. Tobin. Mr. Floyd died from positional asphyxia, which is a fancy way of saying he died because he had no oxygen left in his body. The defense focusing on the potential impact of Floyd's heart disease and arguing fentanyl use may have been the cause of Floyd's death. He is saying, you know, please, please get off of me. I want to breathe. I can't breathe. 
That is not a fentanyl overdose. That is somebody begging to breathe. Meanwhile, Dr. Tobin noted that with fentanyl, Floyd's respiratory rate should have been 10. Instead, the rate was at 22, which is considered normal. A healthy person subjected to what Mr. Floyd was subjected to would have died as a result of what he was subjected to. Also during yesterday's testimony, Dr. Tobin noted that George Floyd showed signs of a brain injury four minutes before Derek Chauvin lifted his knee. And another major story we're tracking today, a new twist for Congressman Matt Gates as the Republican faces a growing sex trafficking investigation. Joel Greenberg, a key Gates associate, now appears poised to strike a deal, a plea deal, and cooperate with prosecutors. Edwin Piti has the latest details on this from Washington, D.C. Edwin, what's the latest? That's right, Andrea. I can tell you the FBI continues its investigation into Congressman Matt Gates for possible prostitution and sex trafficking, including allegations of having sex with a 17-year-old girl. And as Gates is scheduled to speak today at a conference organized by Women for America First, he could receive very uncomfortable news. Joel Greenberg, the former tax collector in Seminole County and close political and personal ally of Congressman Gates, plans to strike a plea deal. By doing that, Greenberg, who is facing 33 federal charges, could charge share damaging information about his relationship with Gates. Some of Greenberg's charges are for wire fraud, creating fake IDs, stalking a political opponent, and sex trafficking. This is what Greenberg attorney said about the possible deal. I think that uh, Mr. Greenberg, if he accepts a plea or a plea agreement, um, that uh, one, it will show his sense of remorse, which he does have, and his sense of acceptance of responsibility. Um, number two, I think uh, he's, he's uniquely situated. The attorney also making it clear that his client could be a big help to the FBI. So far, investigators are looking into Gates' travel schedule, especially a trip to the Bahamas. The probe could be looking into the possibility that women were paid to travel for sex with Gates and others. Congressman Gates has declined to comment regarding the trip, and his spokesman stand by his initial statement that Representative Gates has never paid for sex, nor has he had sex with an underage girl. We are reporting live in Washington, D.C. Back to you, Andrea. Have a good weekend. Thank you, Edwin. Likewise, same for you. Meanwhile, at the White House, President Joe Biden is creating a bipartisan commission to study the possible expansion of the Supreme Court. The president, acting under pressure from activists, pushing for more seats to alter the ideological balance of the court after former President Trump appointed three justices, including one to a seat that Republicans had blocked his predecessor, Barack Obama, from filling for almost a year. In his executive order issued today, President Biden will create a 36-member commission charged with examining the history of the court, past changes, and the potential consequences of altering the size of the court. 
And in other administration news, the Environmental Protection Agency is changing Trump-era guidance on chemicals. The EPA says Trump officials compromised an assessment of chemical dangers. Biden's EPA has now replaced the previous assessment with a new one that they say upholds the tenets of scientific integrity. The issue stems from a family of synthetic chemicals called PFAS, known for links to health complications. The EPA says PFBS, a PFAS chemical, has been found in drinking water, wastewater, and surface water. The new assessment will allow communities to determine when to take action on potential health risks associated with human contact with this family of chemicals. Vaccination numbers around the country are growing, but experts warning it won't be enough to stop the fourth wave from surging in the coming weeks. Meanwhile, the CDC now recommending vaccination sites in North Carolina and Colorado continue operations after being shut down due to reports of possible side effects. Lorraine Caceres has more. Right now, hospitalizations up in at least 17 states. Some experts suggesting even vaccinations won't stop the fourth surge from spreading across the country. Michigan's done a remarkable job getting its population vaccinated. And yet last Friday, they reported 8,400 cases of, of new uh, coronavirus infections. Uh, so while vaccination is important, it is obviously a, a critical part of our long-term game plan. We're not going to have enough vaccine at the way we're going uh, into the arms of enough Americans over the course of the next six to 10 weeks with this surge that we're going to stop it. It's just simply not going to happen. 175 million doses of vaccine have already been administered in the U.S. One in five people now fully vaccinated for COVID-19. But vaccine hesitancy is still a major hurdle in achieving herd immunity. The Kaiser Family Foundation finding one in five rural residents say they definitely won't get vaccinated. Meanwhile, the CDC recommending vaccinations resume at this site in North Carolina, finding no safety issues after 18 people reported symptoms of nausea and dizziness in connection to the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. A similar scenario unfolding in Colorado, where 11 people out of 1,700 presented the same symptoms. Well, one of the good things is these adverse reactions showed up very early in the process of vaccination. As you may be aware, people are asked to stay 15 to 30 minutes after vaccination to be observed. And all of these occurrences were in that period of time. So I think the vaccination was likely safe and effective for everyone who received it successfully. COVID-19 vaccine side effects are rare. Serious reactions like anaphylaxis happening in just two to five out of every million people vaccinated. And on the issue of vaccine supply, doses for Johnson & Johnson's vaccine are expected to drop significantly from this week to next week, from 5 million doses this week to 785,000 doses next week. There was a mistake, a mix-up in uh, the formulation of this vaccine in a plant in Baltimore. But officials, health officials from the government are saying that they're not worried. They are saying that the company, they have full confidence the company will keep up with its demand and its delivery schedule promised to be at 100 million by May. Andrea, back to you.
Thank you, Lorraine, for those details. And as many look to the summer as a potential return to normal, some news out of Washington providing a small setback. The National Park Service announcing that this year's National Independence Day parade in Washington, D.C., will be canceled. The Park Service says many of the high school bands and drill teams involved can't travel due to COVID-19. They also haven't had enough time to rehearse and fundraise for this event. The National Park Service says the parade should be back next year. Meanwhile, in New York, a new economic fund could provide a financial lifeline to those unable to receive pandemic assistance. Blanca Rosa Vilches has more from the Big Apple. It's great news to thousands of immigrant workers. A fund could provide payments to those excluded from other forms of pandemic relief. We saw how hard hit our community uh, was and, and continues to struggle uh, throughout the aftermath of the pandemic. Um, we want this to be a good stimulus for our local communities, allowing uh, all New Yorkers to catch up on rent and be able to provide for their families and hopefully spend a little money uh, on our small businesses too. New York will offer two different ways for the workers to benefit, says the state senator who supported the idea from the very beginning. One that will award $15,600 to people who have a, an ITIN number or a tax ID and can easily prove um, uh, how much money they uh, lost over the, uh, in wages over the past year. Um, and then the second category for those who uh, don't have such clear documents Around 80,000 undocumented workers could get the benefits. I have relatives who have paid taxes. I never got any help from the local or federal government. They have not been able to pay their rent and they're living off donations and they have children. The people who are thinking about applying, the authorities are recommending to get as much information as possible in the coming days. In Queens, New York, Blanca Rosa Vilches, U News. And now to Florida. This week, the state expanded vaccine eligibility to all residents 16 and older. And for the first time since vaccine distribution started, Florida officials are also extending vaccination to people incarcerated in state prisons. This makes Florida among the last states to inoculate prisoners despite recommendations from health experts to prioritize people in jails and prisons. Joining me now to discuss all this is Catherine Nowotny. She's the co-founder of the COVID prison project. She's also a sociology professor at the University of Miami, my alma mater. Thanks so much for being here today, Professor. Welcome to U News. Thank you so much, Andrea. I'm glad, I'm glad to be here. So talk to us a little bit about this. Why the delay in vaccinations at Florida state prisons? Um, well, so Florida is not the only state that has delayed vaccination. As far as we can tell um, from data from COVID prison projects, only 36 states to date have allocated any vaccines to people who are incarcerated. Um, Florida, um, the delay here has been at the state level um, with Governor DeSantis coming out really strong, saying he wants to prioritize, quote, law-abiding people. Um, and he recently changed course, um, announcing on Tuesday night that they were going to start vaccine allocation for people who are incarcerated in Florida. 
Now, we know that there's a high level of vaccine hesitancy among minority groups. Is this similar among people that are in jail? Definitely. So not only are our prison systems overrepresented uh, with people from um, you know, black people, Latino people, people that already have distrust um, in medical systems due to centuries of medical abuses. Um, but then you add on top of that uh, the dehumanizing experience of incarceration and there's a lot of institutional distrust. Describe for us how jails and prisons handled the pandemic response in general since it happened in the beginning and where we're at now. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, we know that over the course of the pandemic, prisons and jails have been the largest single site cluster outbreaks uh, for COVID-19. And anybody who has any experience working in or being in um, the, I would say the, role, the uh, COVID mitigation strategies have been varied. Um, because we have a you know, fragmented system with multiple jurisdictions at state level, county level, federal level operating, um, and no real coordination or guidance. Um, so we know that the risk of coronavirus um, infection in prisons is about five times that of the general population, and the risk of mortality is three times that of the general population. Um, so there is an increased risk. Um, part of that is because of the um, slow rollout of mitigation efforts. And part of that is due to, you know, the unsanitary and cramped overcrowded living conditions um, in which people in prison live. Now, you co-founded the COVID Prison Project a year ago at the height of this pandemic. Your organization's goal is to track COVID outbreaks in prisons. Where do you see your project heading now? Yes, uh, thank you so much for asking that. Um, so I, we did start it a year ago. Um, it was myself and Dr. Lauren Brinkley Rubenstein at the University of North Carolina. And we really want to capitalize on this moment. Um, for the first time, uh, we have uh, departments of correction being transparent. Um, they're reporting data regularly on a regular basis about what's going on within their facilities. And data transparency, as we've learned throughout the course of this pandemic, has been so important and so critical. And so we're hoping to continue our efforts uh, to push for data transparency um, and to push for decarceration and to push for better healthcare services for people who are incarcerated. Well, thank you so much for your time and for explaining the situation in many jails and prisons across the country and also in particular in Florida, the situation there. Thank you so much for your time. Catherine Nowotny, co-founder of the COVID Prison Project. Take care. Thank you, Andrea. Apprehensions at the U.S. southern border are at the highest level in nearly two decades as migrants hope to gain entry into the United States, including thousands of children who are being held in detention facilities. For more, Pedro Rojas joins us live from La Jolla, Texas. Pedro, what's the latest on the situation there? Well, definitely, this is what reality is right now in South Texas. Every single day, groups of families alone when unaccompanied minors arrive at any time of the day they are sort of processed here on the field and immediately load onto these pulses to be taken to the processing centers where they are separated by groups of families and unaccompanied minors. Now, while all of this has happened, a lot of things are happening in the southwest border. For once, the government issued yesterday the numbers of March that indicates that during the month of March, 172,000 migrants were apprehended at the southern border reaching a number never reached in the last 20 years in the month of March. Also, 20,000, almost 20,000 unaccompanied minors were apprehended in the month of March. 
surpassing by 100% the numbers in the month of February. And while all of this has happened, Homeland Security Secretary Mayorkas toured the border. He went to El Paso. He came to McAllen, Texas. He met with local NGOs in El Paso and local congressional leaders. And down here in McAllen, Texas, near where we are in La Jolla, he only met with DHS officials. Now, all of these meetings without the presence of the press, no one from the media was able to attend those meetings and see what was the interaction and what was spoke in, spoken and speaking in those, in those meetings. Now, let me take you back to the scene because you need to see firsthand what is taking place. Now, all of these families have already been interviewed by agents. They are getting ready to be loaded onto the bus. And while all of this is happening, there are also other controversies taking place around the state of Texas. The, government, the governor of Texas, Greg Abbott, has come out saying that there are issues at one of the shelters that was open here in the state, in the city of San Antonio, the Freeman Coliseum. He says that he has gotten uh, the uh, claims of uh, ass sexual assaults to minors, a lack of food, lack of supervision, and also cases of COVID not being handled properly inside that shelter. In fact, the governor of Texas is demanding that that shelter can, it should be closed. But going back down here, all of this, it's funneling to this, this place. Here in La Jolla, Texas, where we stand, this is one of the hot spots in the last few weeks where every day you can see this reality. The families and accompanying minors, they keep coming. We have been able to speak with some of them, and they said that basically they're running away from the tragedy that is going on in their countries, some of them from Guatemala, some of them from Salvador, some of them from Honduras. But the reality is that people from many different countries are coming across every day here in the southern border. Back to you. Like you said, it's a tough reality for thousands of people there. Thanks so much, Pedro, for bringing us that live report. And all along the border between the U.S. and Mexico, continued concerns because of an ongoing closure that's lasted more than a year because of the coronavirus pandemic. Paulina Gomez takes a look at the impact to families, commerce, and much more. The over 1,860 miles of short border between the U.S. and Mexico is home to some 15 million people. Many have a life on both sides of the border that for more than a year has only been open for essential activities. I have many relatives in Laredo, Texas, and I haven't been able to see them. I'm a street vendor and now I can't cross to Laredo, Texas to bring merchandise. Before the border was closed on March 21, 2020, merchandise valued at roughly $1.4 billion crossed every day. The U.S.-Mexico border is also the most frequently crossed in the world. However, Mexican Foreign Affairs Minister Marcelo Ebrard says there is no scheduled date to reopen in the medium term. What we're going to do is to revise the activities based on the pandemic evolution and vaccination on the Mexican side. In the meantime, there is a bit of hope in the border town of Nuevo Laredo, Texas, for a group of migrant families from Central America that have been stuck here for a year. We were thinking about how to move away from here to another border point despite the dangers, but thank God they opened the door here through Laredo. After being subject to the Migrant Protection Protocols, a program implemented by the Trump administration, these families just entered the United States to keep moving forward with the asylum process. The Mexican Foreign Affairs Minister also said they are already working on reducing the economic impact of maintaining travel restrictions at the border. Paulina Gomez-Bulchiner in Mexico City, U News. More of U News after this short break. 
Imagine a daily newscast that speaks to you about your world in plain English. Each weekday, we partner with Hispanic America's most trusted news source to bring you the stories from home and abroad that matter to you. They don't know when they're going to be able to go back to work. Victims also from Mexico and this mass shooting. Officials in and out of the residence. We're going to continue fighting. Your news covers the news of your world and makes it easy to understand. Your news, your world, your news on Fusion. Welcome back to You News. And this morning, historic news out of London, Buckingham Palace announcing that Prince Philip, the Duke of Edinburgh, has died at the age of 99. The palace saying his royal highness passed away peacefully this morning at Windsor Castle. Azul Alvarez brings us more on his long and legendary life. He was always by her side. His life defined by his marriage to Queen Elizabeth II. Hi, Elizabeth Alexander Mary. Take Take Born into the Greek royal family but later exiled from Greece, Philip eventually landed in England, joining the British Royal Navy at age 18 and soon meeting a young Princess Elizabeth. Elizabeth's ascension to the throne in 1952 changed everything, giving up his own career. Philip spent the rest of his life walking two paces behind the sovereign. The couple had four children, Charles, the current heir to the throne, and Andrew and Edward. As consort to the queen, Philip supported his wife in her official duties and, well, everything else. The queen honored Prince Philip during the Golden Jubilee celebrations, marking her 50 years on the throne. He is someone who doesn't take easily to compliments. But he has quite simply been my strength and stay all these years. And I and his whole family owe him a debt greater than he would ever claim or we shall ever know. At 95, the palace announced the prince would be withdrawing from public life, putting his royal feet up after 70 years of public service. But that certainly didn't keep him homebound. He continued to celebrate family weddings and was even still driving at age 97 when he was involved in a serious car crash, his SUV flipping over, yet the Iron Duke walked away uninjured. She called him her rock, the Queen's devotion to him absolute. Today, this country closes the chapter on the longest-lasting marriage in British royal history. Azul Alvarez, U News. Thanks for listening to You News, the podcast. Don't forget to follow You News on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And if you haven't yet, go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review. And join us tomorrow for a new episode. Until then.